What's up with all these books? Books everywhere. Growing on trees. So many of them. I actually switched to the iBook. Oh, yeah? That. It was very enjoyable. Keep Kept me from uh, looking at Twitter and then switching from Twitter to Instagram and then reopening Instagram for some reason because I wasn't sure what I was looking at a second ago and then opening Twitter again. Because you're a millennial, you just get so distracted yeah. so easily. Yeah. Do you ever close the app that you were looking at and reopen the exact same app? Yeah. Yeah. All it's, the time. It's a sickness. Yeah, I only have like three apps on my phone, so it's pretty much just what I do. But if you're into reading books, and you should be, so you're not a, don't turn into a big dummy. Yeah. Um, the Soul of Basketball by Ian Thompson, who we will talk to here in a minute, is a fantastic read. Uh, thank you for recommending it. I enjoyed it. Um, anything, I want to check out the rest of his catalog, actually, and see what else he's got out there, because uh, very quick, very clean, very easy, easy write and read. Um from him on this book and it's of course about a subject that i love and that's near and dear to my heart so it flew by but uh couldn't have enjoyed it more oh absolutely so the soul of basketball it's about the 2010 2011 nba season uh it's about it's a lot about lebron and the decision and and the summer of 2010 and what was you know it's kind of weird to go back in time and we talked to ian about that too but uh going back in time to a time when lebron was a villain yeah. Whenever he was not liked, to whenever he was not a champion. He whenever was getting he was, clowned on. Yeah, he was possibly the best player in the NBA, but you got Kobe coming off two championships. He's kind of the guy. Mm-hmm. You got the Celtics out east that LeBron's going to have to get past. LeBron is talented, there's no doubt about it. He's amazing. Uh, and he'd gone to the finals before with Cleveland. He'd had some incredible seasons with the Cavaliers, but he's ringless, and he kind of inflicted villain status upon himself with the decision so i think that kind of sparked the idea in ian's mind to write this book Mm -hmm. and then you have the celtics dynasty you have kobe and then a a mystery team comes along as as one often does and and upsets kind of the whole party and it it happens to be dirk and the mavs so it's the story of lebron kind of creating his destiny Mm -hmm. player agency choosing his own path rewriting the rule book in the NBA and becoming the face of the league almost in an in adverse fashion, right? Yeah, and how the timing worked out perfectly if it would have happened if this Mavs team is put together the next season. Uh you know, and LeBron has 82 games with the Heat under his belt. I don't know what happens yeah. if they meet in the finals that year if the Celtics, you know, if Rondo doesn't freak out heading into the playoffs or if Ginobili doesn't break his elbow, like I don't that's what's so cool about it is it's a uh, it's a moment in time that's unlike any other in an atmosphere that was built up to it and uh, Ian does a great job of uh, encapsulating it and one of the things I wanted to ask him though he didn't have time to was uh, you know was there a team that you wanted to spend more time with in the season that you just didn't get get a chance to and that might have been the Mavericks yeah. that might be the answer honestly of teams that he wasn't paying much attention to and then he's like oh all right yeah because really nobody was I mean <laughs> yeah. you could blame him right I mean. Just think of the West at the time. The Spurs were the number one seed that year. The mm-hmm. Thunder were like the sexy up-and-comers. You had KD and Russ and Jeff Green and Serge Ibaka and James Harden all on the same day. Well, Jeff Green was traded actually midseason for Kendrick Perkins, which made it even more interesting mm-hmm. covering the Thunder. You have the Thunder in the Western Conference Finals against these old kind of boring Mavs that no one really knew much about. How cool would that have been? Yeah. You get KD and LeBron. One of them wins a championship for the first time. Well, instead, you know, we waited a year for that one, and uh, and the Mavs kind of stole everybody's thunder that year. So it just, it was really a wild season, and and the book really puts into 
puts it into perspective for us because I all of my memories of the 2011 year just watching the Mavs. Mm-hmm. I lived that season through Dallas. I thought all along, well, the Mavs are the best team. They've beaten all the best teams. They swept the Heat in the regular season. They had this great record whenever Dirk played. But if you lived in Boston, if you lived in L.A., if you lived in Miami, if you lived in San Antonio, anywhere else in the world, really the world, you did not think that the Mavs were going to do it. So it's just really interesting to read what else was going on in the NBA around that team and then how the Mavs kind of crept up on everybody and, uh, and ended up winning the, winning the title for themselves. I distinctly remember heading into the playoffs. I was on uh, DallasBasketball.com podcast. I was a guest on there. Podcast existed back then? They did. Wow. You were really like way ahead of your time, dude. And I can't remember the whole group that was in it, but uh, it was the Portland series. And I was the only person of the five people that predicted the Mavericks to beat the Portland Trailblazers. Really? Yes. <laughs> no joke. Wow. No joke. And then, okay, so that series wraps up. It's uh, whatever it is. It's a, it has to be a Thursday, Friday, Saturday in between the Portland series and the L.A. series. And my buddy texts me and says, hey, I have tickets to go see the popular band Arcade Fire. And I said, hell yeah, bro. I'm there. <laughs> I'm so there. I'll be yelling whenever uh, Wake Up is playing. Yeah. I'll do the whole thing with you. Like, I love that band. Great time. So we go and, you know, they're just nailing it. Just, you know, they do the trick where they slide right. Each position, and the and the lead singer is doing the drums, and the drums is doing the bass, and the bass is doing the tambourine, and just having there, the best. There, that's a true team, right? Yeah, exactly. Just having the best time, and like they're about 10, 15 songs in, and a little bit of banter, a little bit of banter time on stage. And when Butler walks up to him, he's like, "Ah, like, eh, so y'all just advanced, huh?" He's like, "Oh yeah, we were at dinner last night and bumped into Tyson Chandler at the restaurant, and uh, super nice guy." And he's like, he goes, uh, "So who do y'all have next?" And everyone goes, uh, Lakers, Kobe Lakers. And he goes, Huh. Well, good luck with that. Oh. <laughs> Arcade Fire lead singer. We gotta uh we yeah. gotta hit him up with some mean tweets. We gotta we gotta talk about that, Win Butler. But uh that's one of my favorite memories of the championship season, just making Win Butler eat his words. Not that I dislike the guy, it's just a funny occurrence to uh be so uh, boisterous in front of, I don't know, ten, twenty thousand people at Starplex, just being like Phew. Good luck with them Lakers, guys. Yeah, freezing cold takes instant classic. <laughs> exactly. I remember going into the playoffs thinking, okay, my thought was the winner of Mavs-Lakers wins the championship mm. if the Mavs can beat the Blazers. Like, yeah. what kind of deluded thinking is that? Like, if the Mavs beat the... the that, that makes it, sense, though. If they beat the Lakers, they'll definitely win the championship, but they mm. got to get out of the first round first. Like, what? that's... That really was a mental twisted. block, though, wasn't it? Was. It was. The I first mean, it round was a was. mental block. And then it's almost as if, like, okay, if we're within a touchdown, you know, at halftime, like, let's talk. You know, it's that type of thing. Yeah. Like, I think this is a second-half team. And they were obviously a second-half of the playoffs team. Yeah. You know? Uh, they beat the pants off the Thunder. Well, I was I was scared of the Thunder because I, I was a KD truther before KD was, <laughs> like, uh, quite as good as he is now and just world-renowned uh, basketball player. But I – that's the one I couldn't believe. I was like, they made quick work of these dudes. What is this? Yeah. Um, but yeah, fun times to uh, relive that entire season and get some different perspectives going into it. You know, a lot of Celtic stuff, a lot of Miami Heat stuff, a lot of Lakers stuff, a lot of Spurs stuff and Popovich time in there, which is fascinating to me. And then, of course, the Mavs are highly featured. And everybody's so- all access open, telling mm-hmm. telling personal truths. I mean, it's a, it's a really, like, I was almost surprised reading through it just how honest everybody was yeah and it was weird to read names of people that i work with yeah <laughs> shout out lisa tyner shout out procopio yeah you know? 
That was right at the time was Kobe's guy. Yeah. He wasn't even with the Mavs yet. I mean, <laughs> whoa, I'm so excited. Oh, I just really choked. Uh, this only happened seven, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. But reading it, kind of like we were talking about with LeBron, it feels like it's from a different era of humanity. Yeah, it really does. I mean, it's a, it's a totally different. So you really kind of have to, Ian challenges you to put your own self into the headspace of what was life like before LeBron was yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. What was like life like before Dirk was a champion? Whenever people didn't really respect him, just the anxiety you would walk around with as a Mavs fan, as that's part of that's a big part of my identity, my favorite sports team, and you know we've been told we're not good enough, yeah, forever. And obviously, basically. those questions have been answered now. Yeah, but they weren't back then. So just going back through and reading about it is just it kind of takes you back to those times whenever mm-hmm. Brandon Roy beats you in Game Four, and you're like, I'm. I don't even like basketball anymore. Yeah, exactly. You know? And and you just kind of revisit all of these moments mm-hmm. through Dirk's eyes, through Holger's eyes, Mark Cuban, Donnie Nelson, all these people who were there. And it just, it I don't know, it was just really great, man. It, it's a really, really, really good book. And even if you haven't read a book since you were in whatever, high school or middle school, you need to read it as a Mavs fan. You will absolutely love it. And it's weird because we have absorbed it uh, and metabolized the fact that the Mavericks have a championship and Dirk is a champion and this team was good enough to be the best team in basketball for one season. But you never think about the other teams that live through careers of guys like Carl Malone, like Kevin Garnett with the Timberwolves, like James Harden right now, of guys yeah. that don't have titles. Chris Paul. Chris Both Paul, of them together. For sure. And that bigger conversation probably for a whole separate podcast, but like, we have more super teams now, or do we have more guys that we consider superstars? Yeah, that is a, that's a very valid question. And is it just because of the overall awareness and social media and just the the hype beast that is? You know, I I think Donovan Mitchell is in my craw. Like I think about that dude a couple times a week. <laughs> yet is he a top twenty player? You know what I mean? Like that. He's like played he's one a, season. He's a superstar. He's his hype is on superstar level. Like I love that dude. Much like I love Dennis. Much like I'm gonna love Luca. But it's just uh, the guys are always right in front of you. So I feel like we just have more superstars. Um, and everyone just considers every team like a, a super team now. Yeah, and you know, this is one of the real deeper kind of themes of the book that that is really prevalent early and then kind of fades to the background later on. But all of this stuff was things David Stern dreamed up mm-hmm. in the mid-80s. Yeah. Whenever he was, whenever he before he was uh, commissioner of the league, and then whenever he came in, to his commissionership into a league that was playing finals games on tape delay and realized <laughs> we got to stop making it about the the coaches and that we got to make this about the players. I don't yeah. I don't care if people are uncomfortable with the race. I don't care if people are uncomfortable with the type of music that these athletes are listening to. Mm-hmm. We need to promote them, get people to know them and they're going to love them. That's and, that's that's even weirder. Not thinking back to 2011, but thinking back to like 1990. Yeah. Where people were telling David Stern like you can't have a league that all of the stars of this movie are African-American. Yeah. That is bizarre. Yeah. And and Michael Jordan, I mean, to his credit, and Magic Johnson before him, too, are two guys that really kind of, they won over they won over everybody mm-hmm. because they were incredible players, they were incredible personalities, and they were incredible champions. And kind of the, the, the initial theme of the book is LeBron is the, the extreme example, the extreme kind of... Um, extension of Michael Jordan Mm -hmm. two generations later he is the guy that everybody knows and he is trying to enter that enter their stratosphere and he went about it maybe not the best way yeah the decision and then all of a sudden now we're we're in we're into the the first act of the play 
his recruiting process, this guy wants to be Michael Jordan, but he's not. Yeah, he's got the Jordan hype. He's got the hype. He's got the uh, accolades as if he had won a championship. And then Kobe's kind of the other side of the coin of he has the Jordan competitiveness. He has the Jordan, you know, maniacal personality. But not the marketability. Exactly. You can't – and that dude doesn't exist. That's why Michael Jordan is so great. Yeah. Um, and LeBron's kind of Sisyphean pushing the stone up the hill of trying to be not like Mike, but trying to be the next Mike, trying mm-hmm. to be LeBron. And he finally – has achieved it. I think we would all agree in yeah. his own way. But to go back into sort of the, the thick of his voyage where things turned south for him, and by south I mean about as far south as you can go, yeah. to becoming like the least liked athlete in America, it was just really interesting to kind of take that trip through time. I Again, it was it's so interesting to kind of get myself into that headspace of, mm-hmm. man, I remember whenever every it was cool to hate LeBron. Yeah. You know, and now it's like – how could you dislike him? But yeah. this is a time whenever that was going on. And, and and to his credit, he rebounded from that low about as well as anybody you could ever have imagined. For a superstar to go from loved to loathed to loved again, and now he's like a hero in the community and, and, and on the basketball court. He's an incredible champion, and we're lucky to have him. But to, to read through some of the things that happened during that season is just really, really eye-opening. Yeah, and – I think you or Ian brought it up pretty well that uh, the break, the breaking of LeBron in 2011, he reexamines everything. Like, everything's on the table. Like, I think I put together the best team I could possibly put together. I'm in the best situation I can be, and I wasn't good enough. So let's, everything on the table, throw it in the trash. Bring, that, bring the trash canister over here. I'm going to throw it in the trash. And what he is now, which is a role model for the league. Like, I love that dude now. Yeah. Thinking seven years ago, things I might have said about him, like the hate I had for him and going to Miami and not one, not two, yep. not three. And once the game starts, it's going to be hey, easy. Yeah, they're going to be easy once the game start. you know? Seven, eight, hey, who knows? And the things that, the 180 that I think the entire world has pulled on LeBron is, is fascinating to think of a world pre-championship LeBron and how wrong he did things for a while. And the role model he is now. Like, I absolutely love that guy. I can't get enough of him. I'll watch his Instagrams. I'll watch him if he goes, shows up at his kid's game. Like, I think that dude is just carrying the league in a fashion that rare human being could. And uh, it's cool. It's a cool read. Um, Go check it out. The Solo Basketball uh, by Ian Thompson. And without further ado, here's Ian Thompson. Well, isn't this cool? We've got a, a genuine... Badass writer on the phone, Mr. Ian Thompson, the writer of The Soul of Basketball, the epic showdown between LeBron, Kobe, Doc, and Dirk that saved the NBA. Ian, thank you so much for uh, some time this afternoon, man. Uh, Hey, thanks for having me. Dallas is the city and the team that made the whole thing possible, so it's, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Yes, sir. I feel like whenever someone puts out a movie or an album or a book, no one ever really says uh, thank you for undertaking this task, but I'd like to say thank you. I thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's uh, really nice of you. Thanks. I, it took me longer than I would have liked, but <laughs> I, thoroughly, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it too, and um, I, th- I, think, I think because because of this team that won and the guy that led them to that victory, it it really turned it into a kind of a lasting story. I, I wrote the book hoping that 
it will have staying power that people will be talking about it because it was a really important thing that happened. It, it was uh, obviously it was important to Dirk Nowitzki and Mark Cuban and the Mavericks and the city of Dallas. But I really think it was important for the NBA. It was important for world basketball. It 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 tells a, a, an immigrant story in America that really needs to be told, you know, from a new point of view. And I, I just think a lot of things came together all at once, and it became one of the most important events in the history of the NBA that the Dallas Mavericks won that championship. And I think not only was it really important just for the league, but obviously it was important to Mike and to me and to every Mavs fan out there just to, to actually see them finally scale the mountain and really plant their flag as champions. But they had to be – so it's, it's clear from reading the book, you know, the, the early chapters are a lot about LeBron – Doc Rivers, Kobe, because they were kind of the ones running the league at the time. And then you get to chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, somewhere in there, all of a sudden, well, the Mavs get a mention. And then as you keep reading, it's more and more about the Mavs, almost to the point where if you didn't watch basketball that season, I think it would almost have been impossible to predict that eight years from now, we would be reading about the Mavericks winning the championship just because of so many things that happened earlier in Dirk's career, but also even during that season. I mean, Dirk gets hurt, Karan Butler gets hurt, Jason Terry and J.J. Barea get in a get in an argument basically on the last game of the season. I mean, the team just seems to be falling apart, sort of fulfilling that that stereotype, their destiny of losing in the first round. So at what point were you, whenever you were writing about the book, at what point did you realize, oh my gosh, I think this book might end up being about Dirk. It might end up being about Dallas. <laughs> I think when they won game five. <laughs> in, the, in the finals, it took that long, huh? No, no, no. I was, I was, uh, I was feeling very fortunate because, um, you know, I was at Sports Illustrated and I spent a lot of time around the Mavericks and and Dirk. I went to Germany for a story that they actually never published, um, but I spent a lot of time around him, and I knew what I knew what the story would be if they were to win, and it was, you know, you. As a sports writer, especially a national sports writer, but I, I think anybody, you, you don't cheer for a team. You don't, you don't say, "Oh, I, I want this team to win," as a fan does. But you do cheer for the story. You cheer for the best story. And for this guy to to come from the opposite end of the earth, from LeBron James, you know, LeBron's an American, uh, growing up playing the Americans, the American sport. Uh, and from the age of 16, he is supposed to be the greatest. He's supposed to win all these championships. It's all meant to be for him. And then you have Dirk Nowitzki, the immigrant, uh, who didn't really become get to be serious about basketball till he was 16, which was just about the time LeBron was being put on the cover of Sports Illustrated as the chosen one. And um, the fact that you had this guy who had to talk himself into becoming a star he didn't really believe it all the way along. Other people believed in him more than he believed in himself. He was just so humble, such a teammate. So you have these two guys from opposite ends of the earth meeting in the finals, and that's just a great story. And then for Dirk to win it, I think it really helped LeBron in a strange counterintuitive way. And LeBron said so the following year when he finally won this championship. He said losing to the Mavericks was the best thing that ever happened to me. And, and I look at it now and see people talk about the NBA as a, a truly global league and who's the biggest global star they've had. You know, I, I think it's Dirk. And um, 
why are they in such great shape right now? Well, LeBron has turned himself into this guy that's really empowered the league, really driven it. And it's because of all these lessons he learned during that season, all these lessons he was forced to learn because Dirk would not let him win the championship that year and forced him to reconsider everything. So, man, you just pull it all together, and it's just really a turning point year, a turning point series for the NBA. Ian Thompson, the author of The Soul of Basketball, if you're a Mavericks fan or just a uh, fan of the league in general, it's a fascinating read and a fantastic book. book. So go check that out. Uh, Buy it wherever you can. Um, Ian, I wanted to ask you about – Obviously, you're following a lot of teams throughout this season, and you're following a lot of storylines and a lot of uh, if this, then that, if A, then B. Um, I wanted to ask you which one sticks out to you the most because reading the book and reading about the final game of the season in which Manu Ginobili uh, broke his arm and sprained his elbow or some sequence of events uh, close to that happened, how as a Maverick fan – staring at the Spurs and just thinking that is insurmountable. We cannot get past the Spurs this season. They're going to be here forever, the rest of our damn lives. And then Manu gets hurt the final game of the season. And that that's the one that always sticks out to me. That and probably Phil Jackson's final season. But I wanted to ask you, if you had to rank maybe top three what-ifs of crazy things that happened that shaped the playoffs that season, what would they be? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Manu being hurt is one. Uh, Rajon Rondo um, having his elbow hyperextended. Uh, the, the day after he had stormed out of a, a team meeting and almost got himself suspended for the biggest game of the year for the Boston Celtics in their series against the Miami Heat, if, if Rondo is on better behavior and doesn't hurt his elbow, the Celtics believe that they would would have beat Miami that year in the playoffs because Miami has such a, a thing about the Celtics. And let me just interrupt you there and say as a as someone who was obviously here, you know, during the Rondo season in twenty fifteen, it was surreal reading that the way that whole situation kind of erupted and came to a head uh in the Boston locker room. They're watching film and, and Doc is, you know, riding Rondo a little hard and then the next thing you know, Rondo's whizzing a, a Gatorade bottle into the T V screen and it just becomes this enormous situation, and it was just insane to think like that. Kind of that same thing happened in Dallas just a few years later. Exactly, yeah. And I, I can tell you, anyone who lived lived in Boston or lived in Boston knew that the dynamic between Rick Carlisle and Rajon Rondo was going to end that way, <laughs> or at least it had that potential. Um, because at that time in his career, I don't think it's true anymore. I think he's come a long way, and people talk about Rondo now as a great teammate and a team leader. You know, uh, I think he's going to be a, a really good signing for the Lakers with LeBron there. But at this time, whether he's playing for the Mavericks in that year or the Celtics in uh, the 2011 playoffs, he he was an insecure guy, and he did not take well the criticism and. Paul Pierce talks a lot in the book, goes on and on and on about how <clears throat> disappointed, almost betrayed he felt by Rondo. They, they had three elderly Hall of Famers on that team, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Ray Allen. They were looking to extend their careers by one more year, and they had done so much for Rondo when Rondo was a rookie, a second-year player. They they carried him along, and now they were counting on Rondo to, to, to carry them along, to, to do for them what they had done for him. And he let them all down by blowing up the way he did. And, um, again, I don't think he's like that anymore. I really think he's turned the corner. But it was an amazing turn of events. 
And at the time, nobody in Boston knew about it. They they kept it secret. And so the next night, he's on the court, and he gets in a tussle with Dwayne Wade, and he gets body slammed, and Rondo puts out his left arm to break the fall, and his arm bends backwards, hyperextends, and uh, it looks like he's out. He came back and played that game and won the game for the Celtics, game three, brought them within 2-1 in the series. And the fans are going crazy for Rondo, but his teammates, except for Kevin Garnett, want nothing to do with him. It was unbelievable reading. I mean, you you watch post game coverage after a playoff game, and it's you know eleven at night, and you you're a few beers in, so maybe you're not paying so much attention to post game comments. But then, within the context of that Rondo story, and it's this way throughout the book, really, you bring up one situation or another, what really happens in a locker room or in a in a timeout huddle, and then you you hear you read what players and coaches say after the game, and you're just like, oh my gosh, they're we always think of post-game conferences as kind of uh, a waste of time because n- nothing really substantial is said. But if you read between the lines, they're actually saying something very, uh, very revealing in those situations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. Tom Thibodeau told me um, it, uh, it's a tangent, but he told me he spent the day with Bill Belichick. Uh, Tony Larusa, <laughs> Tony Larusa is friends with Thibodeau, the, the old baseball manager. He's also friends with Belichick and. He said to Thibodeau, you know, why don't you come to Boston and just spend a day with the Patriots? And Tom told me one of the big things he wanted to see was how Belichick handled the press conferences because the press conferences are never to speak to you and me. The press conferences are to speak to his team. He uses those press conferences to send messages to his team. And when I listen to Tom Thibodeau, I can also tell he's not talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> he's talking to his team. Um, let's let's stay with the Celtics for a minute before we bounce around a little bit more. Um, I'm always interested in kind of the game within the game, which I know is a generic statement, but whenever you talk to a player and they'll say, well, you know, this guy's this kind of personality. I knew he wouldn't do this. Or, uh, you know, uh, I watched a video with Gilbert Arenas last week, and he's talking about how uh, Kawhi Leonard would defend him. And he said, oh, he's a two-foot jumper, so I know he can't play in this area, in this small space like this. One of the things that fascinated me was the talk of the brain doctor. That uh, that bot that the Boston Celtics had and the personalities that they would seek. And I was reading this chapter, and I was like, I could read a whole book on this guy. Like, I want to know everything that this guy does. And they still use him, I think, to this day. Um, yeah. And they've obviously been exceptional in their scouting and the developing of players. And I guess just um, fill me in on the the Celtics brain doctor and your your time you spent with him. Yeah, I'd known him for years before I started uh, working on this book. Uh, his name is John Neednoggle. He lives in the Midwest. Um, he's uh, done this kind of work in, in other sports, too. And basically, he he's a specialist in brain typing. And maybe when you were in high school or college or at a job, somebody had you take a personality test. Mm-hmm. And they gave you uh, they gave you a score, but your score was four letters. So Michael Jordan's score on this test was ISTP, and that's the best brain type. There are 16 different brain types. His is the best for a basketball player. Larry Bird had it. Shaquille O'Neal had the same kind of brain uh, type, the same kind of wiring. Uh, Doc Rivers had it. Um, a lot a lot of great players had it. Um, and so Neednagel he can study the way a player moves or even his fine motor skills, the way he blinks, the way he talks, the way his lips move when he speaks. And he'll assign that guy a brain type. And what it does for Danny Ainge, it it lets 
Danny know what is the personality of this guy? And that's so important in basketball because there's so many choices built into basketball. You know, you have to decide for yourself. Every player has to decide for himself. What is that balance between playing for myself and playing for the team? You know, it's not like in football, the, uh, the coach says the offensive lineman, you block that guy and you have to follow that. Or in baseball, the, you just hit, hit the ball where it's pitched. But in basketball, there's all these decisions, all these freedoms built into it. It's why it's the American game. And so Danny believes in this guy's point of view <clears throat> that, um, that uh, half of your personality is based on your wiring. And it gives him a real insight, a way of looking at players as people not just as players, but as people. So he knew that based on Rondo's brain type that there was, pro- there was probably going to be friction between, um, between Rondo and the coach, Doc Rivers, because Doc Rivers had Shaquille O'Neal's brain type and Rondo had Kobe Bryant's brain type. <laughs> it's almost, and it's almost that simple. The, the, same, the same kind of friction that existed with the Lakers was going to exist between these two. And, that's sort of why the bottle was passed. And, and you can't say, like, each guy was at fault. Rondo was at fault for that, you know, for that blow-up. But that, that's how he was built. And he had also gone through some trauma as a kid that had stuck with him that he admits to. And so there's a lot going on there with Needknockle. And then you have Doc Rivers believes it's, it's a nature-nurture thing, you know, like so – Danny and the brain doctor believe in nature. This is who you are. The way you're born is sort of going to be who you are. And Doc believes in nurture, that he can take who Rondo is and turn him into a, a, a better player, a better person. And I think that's what's happened. I think it finally took. The lessons finally took, and Rondo has changed. He's not the guy he used to be. But that, the, that's the kind of stuff that was going on with the Celtics back then. Well, I think kind of to localize it a little bit, Knowing how, from a team-building perspective, knowing how your most important players are going to respond to certain situations can help you put guys around him that are going to make his job a little easier. And I think the easy example of that is Dirk, a guy who is clearly the best player on the Mavericks during that time and, and for many years before and after that, but is always kind of the quiet guy. He's sort of the – he's a hard worker. He's definitely a leader by example – but he's not going to be the guy, and you go through you know, some examples of this in the book, who's going to stand up in the locker room and make the really impassioned halftime speech when they're down 10, you know, and they need to make a big comeback. So that's why a guy like Tyson Chandler or a more cerebral guy like Jason Kidd or maybe a overly confident guy like Jason Terry or Sean Marion, why all of those guys can coexist so well and complement Dirk so well because they do all of the things like he picks up slack for them by being the top scorer. They pick up all the slack for him in the locker room, on the practice court, in the huddle, whenever uh, they're in the heat of battle. Boy, that's a great point. That is a great point. Yeah. And, and didn't they try all the different combinations and they finally hit on that one. Um, I, to, to pick up on where you're, where you're going with that. I, I, I think that, because Dirk is so humble and self-effacing and he doesn't want to be in the middle of everything. You know, he doesn't want to be all about him. That created this sort of uh, real estate for all these other guys to occupy. So these are all former stars you mentioned who, except for Tyson Chandler, were beyond their peak years. They, they were on the back end of their careers. And yet they thought of themselves as stars in the league still. 
And they were able to act that way because Dirk wasn't taking all the oxygen out of the room. He was sort of stepping out, stepping aside, and letting them, you know, ex- display their personalities and, and fulfill, you know, the the, the players they, they thought they, they thought of being and, and that they still wanted to be. So it's really interesting. I hadn't really thought of it quite like that, but that's, that's exactly right. They they had this mix of guys that that really melded well with Dirk on the court, off the court, socially, emotionally. I mean, it, it really was for that one year, for those, for that couple of months, actually, a, a perfect team. When a year earlier, it's unclear if there's even going to be a team to make perfect because, of course, in the summer of 2010, Dirk is a free agent. While around here, you know, maybe there was never any worry that he was going to leave or that, you know, some other team was going to offer him this huge contract and he'd listen to them the same way that, you know, LeBron was taking visits for the decision and all these other guys are out there exploring the zany summer of 2010. You describe Dirk's free agency process as basically like an evening with Mark Cuban, sipping on some wine, you know, eating a, eating a, a nice steak or some, some comfort food and uh, sitting by the fireplace and swapping stories, basically. So I, I'm just curious... You know what what happened that night whenever those guys met and and Dirk I think his personality kind of shined through just in the way that he went through the free agency process is sort of this real low key like almost almost like uh, uniquely low maintenance guy willing to to endure free agency for about ten minutes before finally signing a contract. Well, I, I do think it was eye opening for him because that was the biggest free agent summer ever, and they listed all these great players, and he he was definitely one of them. But he didn't get one call. I mean, not one team called him. And as as humble as he is and as much as he probably was never going to leave Dallas anyway, that had to hurt him just a little bit. That had to just remind him of the reputation that he had, perhaps, that he was not one of the go-to guys, not one of the guys that you think of as championship material. You know, that had to that had to add – to this uh, motivation or inspiration to go and and do what he did uh, that year. And then uh, the other thing was the Mavericks were aware that, you know, their best player was a free agent. They didn't want to take for granted that he was going to leave. So they they planned to have all these people show up at the airport to meet Dirk when he came in for his contract talks with, uh, with Cuban. And Dirk got wind of it, and he changed his flight, and he told them not to show up. (laughs) Didn't, he didn't want all the hoopla. <laughs> what a so jerk. He, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because he wanted to be all about him. I mean, the guy is consistent, right? He's, he's just, he's unbelievable. It's hard to believe that a guy like this exists in the NBA. And then he told me the, the night before, so he flies into Dallas, you know, and he's just hanging out and he went online. And so since they wouldn't let him, uh, have his little mini parade at the airport or whatever. Uh, they they did a page for him on the website on you guys' website, and it it showed uh, all the all these fans wrote in and shared their feelings for Dirk and their gratitude for him and hoping that he would come back to the Mavericks again. and And he said he he went through them and he was just really touched by it all that all all the kind words and the good feelings and. You know that there really was something there. So on the one hand, nobody around the league wanted him, but in Dallas, he was really wanted. 
And you just think about a guy that when he was 20 years old and he came over as a rookie from Germany, he was scared to come over, didn't know anything about America or the NBA, wondered if he was good enough, wanted to move back home several times. Holger Geschwinder, his mentor, had to keep coming over to, to see him his rookie year, keep talking him into staying in Dallas. And, and you know, for him now to see how far he's come, to see how much how, – to see the kind of relationship he has with the city that was once foreign to him, that he was really at home now. This was his home. And he goes next day and talks with Mark, and they negotiate a contract without agents or anything. You know, it's one of those rare relationships in the NBA that almost doesn't exist anymore. Greg Popovich had it with Tim Duncan. There's a lot about Greg Popovich's relationship with Tim Duncan in the book. But I think that exists too with, with Cuban and Dirk, and they just – sort of agreed on the number and it was it was less than the max so that they would have room to, to go out and do other things, which is a continuing theme for Dirk's contracts ever since and and they shook hands and they realized that they were friends, you know, it was it was more than an owner player relationship that there was really something between them. And I think you really see that during the playoffs that year when Dirk and Jason Kidd were able to talk to Mark and ask him to, to recede from the spotlight to not talk as much during the playoffs. And Mark took it one step further and just went stone cold silent and didn't talk for like the last month of the playoffs. And and the the players really appreciated that he did that. I think it's a big step in, uh, in a young man or a man's life, depending on whenever, whatever age you approach this, that you realize that you don't really have to be one of the cool kids. Like, if nobody wants you on their team, that's fine. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to be good enough for me. And that's all, like, these super teams kind of feel like to me. It's like all the cool kids getting together at, at lunch in high school. And uh, no one else can sit over here. It's just us and this and this super team over here. So that's, that's fascinating because I don't feel like Dirk's ever had to, like, jump that hurdle. I don't feel like he's ever been like, oh, they rejected me. Well, boo-hoo me. I feel like he just moves on and goes in there and works out for that 93 minutes and goes psycho and uh, gets better every summer and comes back and says, you know what, y'all don't want me, y'all don't think I'm cool enough, y'all don't think I'm marketable enough to be on your team, like, that's fine. I'm going to go sign my deal, and I'm going to come back at you next year in the playoffs. Well, and for Dirk, I think, you know, especially in the early years of his career, it wasn't so much convincing everybody else, it was convincing himself. Mm -hmm. yep. he, he didn't see himself as that guy. Yeah. And other people saw it, but he didn't. And so he would say, you know, one of his one of his best friends, Nick Cream, who used to work for the Mavericks, said, you know, he would he would say to Dirk, "It's your team now," and he'd say, "No, it's Steve Nash's team." And then Steve Nash leaves. Nick's like, "It's your team now." No, it's Michael Finley's team. The Michael Finley leaves. Well, now it's Dirk's team. And even then, he he just didn't look comfortable with it the way he did by the time we get to 2011, you know, and that 2006 finals. And then um, in 2007, when they lost in the first round to the Warriors, he, he, he just doesn't look like he's a guy that expects to win. Whereas when you get to 2011, he does. He, when it's the end of the game, and it doesn't matter if he has a fever or if he uh, uh, damaged the, the tendon on his, uh, on his, I think his middle finger of his left hand, the one mm -hmm. that he used to score the winning basket at the end of game two at the end of that comeback. He he looks he looks like the most confident guy in the court. 
And he's going up against a super team that was promising seven championships months earlier with LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh. But it's Dirk. The whole thing's revolving around Dirk. He's the one that's controlling the tempo. He's the one that's at ease. And he's earned it. He earned it the hard way. He had all those losses. Every time he questioned himself and he convinced himself to keep going and to try harder. You know, I remember during that 2010-11 that season, I was in New Orleans. Uh, I actually went out drinking with Mark Cuban the night before the game down Bourbon Street. That had to be and, fun. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people recognized him. He told me it was because of Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, and the next night, Dirk's playing against David West and uh, uh, the New Orleans Hornets, they were called back then. And he's playing like it's game six of a second-round series. And every time I saw him, he was playing like that the whole season. And this was like a Michael Jordan kind of competitiveness that you saw, that you so rarely see. But this guy was driven, and there was belief to it. You know, there was no longer an insecurity or an uncertainty. Um, you know, somebody close to him in the book says there was like a sense of paranoia at times with Dirk because he just didn't trust himself. Well, that's all gone. He's earned it. And and when he finally does win and he's overcome with emotion, it's got to be because he realizes just how far he's come and, and he's just made such a huge transformation within himself. That's right where I was going to go with the next question, which is, okay, 2006 – for me as a longtime Maverick fan, lifetime, I mean, I'm born and raised here. That was humiliating what happened in the finals and what happened to those guys and having to watch that and live through it into the next playoffs with, uh, with what the Warriors did to them. And I didn't play it. I wasn't there. I was one step or two steps removed. So do you think that 2011 could have ever happened without the humil- humiliation of 2006 and what they lived through. You know, I'm, I'm sure it helped. And I know when, when LeBron won in 2012, he was helped by what happened to him in 2011. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm, I'm sure it helped. Um, you know, one thing, though, I look back at that 2006 Mavericks team, and I just think Dirk, Dirk gets a lot of blame for letting the team lose. If they had won the championship, that would have been the weakest championship team we've seen uh, in modern times. Dirk was the only star in the team. There were no other stars. No one put up numbers close to Dirk. There was no number two guy. Jerry Stackhouse had been an all-star many years before. Uh, If you just go through that roster and look at the production and look at those guys and who they were before that year and what they went on to become – there is very little talent on that team. And it's amazing to me that, that they did as well as they did in that finals, actually, because they should not have been able to compete with that Miami team. So that 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 was a chemistry thing that sort of gave them a chance to win it. But then it was a talent thing to me that, that lost it for them. Dwayne, the, Dwayne Wade and Shaquille O'Neal and these other guys, there's just an overwhelming sense of force. That's how I look back on it. The one, the one that that should really hurt, is the next year, mm-hmm. 2007, especially because after they lose and Dirk plays so badly in that series against the number eight seed Warriors, he has to stick around and wait for the MVP trophy that he's going to win based on the regular season, and he wanted nothing to do with it, and I think that that was a time where he had to decide who am I, 
am I a guy that wants to win MVPs and it doesn't matter what happens during the playoffs, or am I playing for the team? Is this about what I do individually, or is it about what the team does? And he clearly decided the individual stuff. Maybe he'd never had to consider it before because he never thought of himself as a guy that would actually win an MVP award. But once he won it, he had to decide, is this important to me or is it? And he decided it wasn't. And that, that to me is another turning point. So really, I almost think 2007 maybe has a bigger impact on him than the previous year. I think it's not only about what happened on the floor, but also later that summer. He kind of, I, I don't want to say that he he didn't run away, but he took some time. He kind of went on a little sabbatical. He and, he and Holger took a months-long safari through Australia and just kind of slept in a van and um, sat by the fireplace at night. And, and Holger's a really interesting character, and I want to talk about him more in a little bit. But just just the, the idea – Picturing an NBA player and kind of a, an old wizard like Holger riding, you know, on a motorcycle through the through the desert in Australia is just it's the most absurd thing ever. But I think for Dirk, <laughs> that that kind of maybe helped him distance himself from that disappointment. I think that that kind of represented a turning point. Now, obviously, they didn't win a championship the next season or anything. There were a couple more years of playoff disappointments, but going away as far away as as you can possibly go from losing to the Warriors, I think was sort of his way of moving on and maybe just kind of cleansing himself from that that just despair. Oh, yeah, and, and getting away and going to places where no one would recognize him. They, I guess they had a, a Jeep or some kind, and you could unfold um, the beds, and they would sleep out in the open under the stars by the beach and – you know that's that's a real uh, produced by Holger Geschwindner. It is. <laughs> I mean that whole thing. There's nobody else. There's no other mentor in the NBA or agent or coach or anybody that would ever come up with a, a trip like this. But that's how he lived his life. That's how he has lived his life. These kinds of trips, you know, going through the Sahara or taking the train through the old Soviet Union or taking a broken down bus and going through the United States when he was a young guy or becoming friends with a, a black player in Germany, a guy in the army, Ernie Butler, who taught him a lot about basketball and um, coming to Indiana and playing pickup basketball with Ernie. Uh, all these kinds of things that Holger's done over his life. Um, he has sort of uh, tried to pass that on to Dirk and help Dirk and there's a big difference between the normal kind of mentoring. You know, like so many parents in America, they, they live vicariously through their kid. And this is, this is not that. This is not uh, Dirk getting to do what Holger didn't. This is Holger helping Dirk explore his own potential and figuring it out and figuring out a way to shoot uh, in a way that no one has ever done before. He figured out a way to shoot that was built entirely to Dirk's specifications. Um, I mean, I've never even bought a tailored suit for myself, but this guy <laughs> tailored an entire way of playing basketball that had never been invented before, and he did it based on the dimensions of Dirk's body and his physiology, and even, I'm sure, his personality entered into it as as they developed it over time. So... You know, so many so many American players, they go through agents left and right, and that's what have you done for me lately. 
it's a cool thing about LeBron James that after the decision, after he went on TV and turned himself into a national villain, and his friends who were his management team, they were the ones that helped talk him into doing it, and he didn't fire them. He stuck with them, and I think that that was a good decision for him. He's made a lot of right moves ever since, and those guys have been with him on it. And Dirk has done the same thing with Holger. He's never left him. They they remain as close as ever. And it's just such a rare thing in sports to see. Not to get too sappy about basketball, but I don't think there's another game on the professional level that takes that kind of toll on you or does that to you in which you need to get away for a month at a time. Like There's a very similar story in the book about uh, Greg Popovich going to New York at the end of every season and just spending a week because nobody knows who he is and just detaching and letting your, your mental state reach, uh, I guess, equal, just equilibrium at some point because the physical toll and the mental toll that the game can take on you. Uh, basketball is just badass. That's all I kind of wanted to say, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the only sport that is, um, it's, it's, of the three major team sports, baseball, American football, basketball, it's the only one of the new world. The other sports, the, you're, the rules decide who you are and who you're going to be and what you can do. In baseball, you have to wait in line to hit. Or if you're the pitcher, you get to play by a different set of rules than everybody else. You're better than everybody else. The same with the quarterback. Basketball isn't like that. Basketball, it's, it's all freedoms and opportunities and it's what you can make of it and there's really almost no limit to it you can play all the minutes of the game you can grab the ball on defense as well as offense. you can do whatever you want but and you have to decide if you're the best player what that balance is between yourself and your teammate and are you going to help your teammate are you going to help yourself you have to as a great player you have to do both and the coach has to oversee that kind of stuff too and I, ju- I just think it's really emotionally draining in a way that none of the other sports could possibly be. The only thing that would be close would be a quarterback, but a quarterback doesn't even play half the plays of a game. The best basketball players play all but three minutes at both ends of the court. So it's just it's just so taxing. That's why when I see James Harden collapse during a, a, a late game in the playoff round, I understand it because he's just carrying so much. There's just so much. There's so many expectations, so many demands. And it's not just physical demands. He's got to do everything for everybody. He's got to figure it out for himself, and he's got to figure it out for his teammates. And everything depends on him. And I think some guys just give out, and they have to build up their resilience. And Dirk had to do that too. You know, he didn't know how to do it in 27, 2007, but he, he sure knew how to do it in 2011. Uh, reading through the book and the early pages, a lot of it's about LeBron, and uh, you dive back in when checking with the Heat every once in a while. But reading the book, and realizing the timeline of it all that LeBron didn't have a championship whenever we're heading into the playoffs of this season is just a bizarre thing to think about because everyone agrees. Everyone looks at each other and says, yes, the best player that's in the game. And I think they did that even going into this season. Yes, he's the best player in the game. He didn't have a title. He had been appointed king before he even had a title. And I'm building towards the question of what was the headline coming out of 2011 for you uh, because it felt like for us it was, oh, LeBron blew it. If you weren't like a diehard Mavs fan and you weren't just, um, you know, beside yourself with joy, it was, 
oh, look, LeBron collapsed. He still doesn't have a title. And then I feel like the storyline kind of morphed four years after that. Whenever LeBron won a couple, it was like, wow, look at what the Mavs did. So I guess for you, the headline leaving the 2011 finals overall from the league, what was it then? And when you look back at it now, if you could write a newspaper headline of it, uh, what is it? That's a great question. You know, I, I worked in Europe for six years in the 1990s. I was uh, the sports writer for the International Herald Tribune, that was called back then. It doesn't exist anymore, but back then it was co-owned by the New York Times and the Washington Post. Uh, I lived in Paris for three years and in London for three years, and I was their sports writer, and I traveled all over the world writing about sports. I was their only sports writer. And I could go wherever I wanted, do whatever I wanted. And I, I did a lot of basketball, European basketball, um, along with everything else, soccer, rugby, tennis, track and field, all that other stuff. But basketball was really my favorite sport. And uh, David Stern would come over, you know, once or twice a year, and I'd often be at the big events that he was going to, and we would spend time and talk. And that, that was a big thing for him was to grow the game globally. And and so that I, I was always – thinking about the NBA, even though I'm American and I'd been around the NBA working at the Boston Globe in the 80s, I was at all three of the Magic Larry Bird finals in the 80s, and I was with the Dream Team in 92 in Barcelona, but I was always thinking of basketball from the sort of foreign perspective and recognizing the way it's viewed around the world. It's not viewed as a business around the world. It's viewed as an idealistic sort of uh, metaphor for American life uh, and the, the freedom of choice that doesn't exist in, in other sports. And and so when he won, when Dirk won, to me, that was the big story to me, that, that this uh, foreign guy had done this, something that had never been done before. And four years, you know, years later, I, I would, I would say to you that, that is still the story. Well, it's it's a it's a hinged story. On the one hand, uh, this door opens up for the rest of the world, so kids all around the world now can grow up thinking, you know, it's not just my dream to make the NBA. My dream is to be the best player and to be the best player on my terms because the Europeans don't think of being the best player that wins the MVP and scores the most points. Europeans and, and players around the world, they think the best player is the guy that leads the team to the championship. It's not about how many points you score. It's winning the games. That's their point of view. It's not a commercial thing for them. It's a, it's a, it's a teamwork thing for them. And so Dirk created this possibility for them to succeed on their terms. He, when I talked to Doc Rivers uh, um, last season about it, and I asked about Dirk. He said he's the most important player in world basketball. And he got it. He understood Dirk is that player because he opened that door. He made it. He made this dream possible. So that's the one way of looking at the story. And then the other way, the door, it's like one of those swinging doors to a kitchen at a restaurant. So it swings open for Dirk and then it swings backwards. But that also opened the door for LeBron because by losing, he was forced to reconsider everything he'd ever done. And in the book, Pat Riley tells me about, Pat Riley, president of the Miami Heat, tells me about his exit meeting with LeBron after that series. And LeBron's just pacing around in Riley's office and just so angry and upset. 
and Riley said he knew exactly what was going to happen. Uh, LeBron was going to go home for a week and just absorb the loss. And what happened after that is he reconsidered everything. He realized all the mistakes he'd made and that his priorities maybe had not been correct. And he became a different player, a different person. He has said so himself. So on the one hand, you know, the door swings open for world basketball and Dirk's won it open and then it flames back the other way and it sort of hits LeBron in the face. But in so doing, it wakes him up and it helps him become a different guy. And I think all of the success the NBA has today is because LeBron became that different guy. He's the guy that's driven this league now in his own way, the same kind of way Jordan used to drive it. And when people talk about the NBA possibly becoming the the biggest sports league in America because it's going to be so big around the world, I think you're talking about the door swinging both ways. It's the, That future exists because of what Dirk did and because of what LeBron did after he lost to Dirk. I think something that's so interesting in – is that I mean, and you pointed it out very early in the interview too that that LeBron and Dirk are just fundamentally different people. They come from different sides of the world, different backgrounds. They grew up around different people, different support systems, different playing styles, different types of personalities. But their career arcs, in my opinion, are so so kind of similar. You know, <laughs> you have funny yeah. Dirk finally reaches the perceived pinnacle. In 2006, 2007, he's taking his team to the finals. He's winning the MVP, but then he suffers two of the most humiliating playoff losses that you could dream of, and it happens in back-to-back years. And at that point, he's questioning, who am am I? What am I going to be? Am I actually this franchise player? Because in my two years alone, I've I've gone out two pretty bad ways. And then you have LeBron, who is forging his own destiny, going to Miami, really rewriting the rules of, of, of how NBA teams do business and and building all sorts of player agency and really changing the fabric of the entire league. But he goes down in flames in humiliating fashion in front of everybody, and it just so happens that he goes down to Dirk, who kind of went through the same thing just a few years earlier. So I think it's just really interesting how, despite their differences, both Dirk and LeBron go through just horribly upsetting losses in the peak of their career. When they, when they are supposed to be at the top of their game and then somehow they, they come out of that sadness, out of that disappointment, stronger, better, uh, as leaders, as players, as people, and, and ultimately both got to achieve their dream. And I just think that's really awesome that it kind of – it was almost a, a happy ending for, for everybody. Yeah, because if, if they had gone the other way, if LeBron wins and Dirk loses, what do we have, you know? So Dirk never got to fulfill himself. He never, uh, he never got to to open this door for the rest of the world. And LeBron, is he forced to now look in the mirror? I don't think so. If LeBron wins in 2011, he gets to tell everybody, "See, I told you so. You were wrong. I was right." Me going on TV and and uh, announcing I was taking my talents to South Beach. You all hated it. Well, look at me. I'm the champion. What are you going to do about it now? And would he have made all these changes that have made him more popular uh, globally, have made the league more popular, more entertaining, more inspiring? You know, when LeBron goes back to Cleveland in 2016, 
that's when I knew that this book could finally come out because he'd redeemed himself. I felt like nobody was ever going to want to read a book about a guy like LeBron James that people didn't like. They, people just didn't like him. But when he went back to Cleveland, one for Cleveland, and he tried to atone for the way he had left, not that he had left, but the way he had left. When he did that, I felt like, well, people may, may not like him, but they have to respect him now. They have to respect him. Would he have, would he have been of that mind? If he'd won in 2011, I, I just think this was the best outcome for everybody, like you said. One of the things I uh, I think about whenever because we lived the career of of Dirk and the European prospects is the the torch that they carry, um, whenever they come over, and I feel like there's this tug of war in the league of okay for these three years the Euro- European prospect is good and then three years later. Uh, Sorry, Luca can't go number one, even though he's the most, um, you know, heralded European prospect of all time. He's going to go three. And I feel like at one point we got too far over uh, the other direction where Bargnani went number one and that didn't work out so well. And now I feel like we're to uh, a major pivot point in the in terms of European prospects coming over in which if Luka Doncic doesn't hit hard and turn into the player that we all think he's going to be, it's going to be real difficult for another European player in the next five to ten years to go top three in the NBA draft. And I'm just fascinated to hear your your ideas on that. Yeah, I, you know, I don't disagree with you, and I think it's totally based on ignorance and not, <laughs> understand, not understanding the differences that create strengths in players rather than weaknesses over there. So when you're when you're growing up in European basketball and you're a great player like Luka Doncic, not like Dirk, because Dirk was not a great player as a young player in, in Germany, but Luka was when he was 13, he signed his first professional contract, and that's what you do. You sign the pro contract, and you leave home when you're young, and you're sort of like in a boarding school. And when you play basketball, as you work your way up, when you finally get to the senior team, you know, you're not like – going to some college campus as the freshman who's only going to stay one and done and everything revolves around you as an 18-year-old. No, when you're playing for Real Madrid, you're nobody as an 18-year-old. You're, you're playing with guys who are in their late 20s and early 30s, and they may not like you because you have this reputation and practice may not be easy and you practice twice a day while you're going to high school, you know, the boarding school kind of situation. And it's just not the life that it's not the entitled life that these guys have growing up in America and how this European experience has come to be seen as a weakness in the NBA culture is just mind boggling to me. It it makes zero sense. I mean, if we were going to look at just the cultural aspect of how players are raised and how they're, how they're turned into players in America versus Europe, you would say the problem is the American system rather than the European system. If you want guys who are going to play team basketball and worry about the team and all that, and Greg Popovich in the book talks a lot about this. He says, you know, he had Tim Duncan on his team, and Tim Duncan, after his third year in the NBA back in 2000, he was going to leave San Antonio just like LeBron left Cleveland. He was going to leave, and he was going to go to Orlando. They were going to sign a super team. It was going to be Tim Duncan, 
uh, Grant Hill, and if they could find a way to work him in, Tracy McGree. They were going to sign all three guys, and Popovich talked him out of it. They had these heart-to-heart talks in the backyard in San Antonio late at night, and Tim Duncan finally agreed to stay, and when he agreed to stay, Popovich went out and tried to find players like him, players who were humble, players who did not make it about themselves, and he said uh, he did not want to have players who were, and this is his word, infected by the AAU mentality of American basketball. So he goes to Europe, and he gets Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili, and he gets other European players or foreign players, and he builds this dynasty in San Antonio. They're the only small market team that's had any success in the NBA. You know, they've won all those championships as a small market team. There's no other, no other small market team that's had any success like it except for Cleveland with LeBron. Um, the, Cleveland's the only other small market team, I believe I'm correct on this, that's won a championship since Bird and Magic came into the league. So it, it, it's, it's an amazing thing to me that Luka Doncic, who I am so confident is going to be the best player in the draft, based on what he's shown so far and based on the team he's going to be playing for uh, and, and the culture of that team and what they've appreciated in Dirk and now they've got a, the, the second coming in Luka. I'm sure he's going to be the best player, and yet there's all this skepticism in spite of all the evidence. He's done stuff no other European player has ever done, and for him to do that, the odds he had to overcome to do it, to be the best player at 18 years old on a team full of adults, guys who have won championships, guys who put an elbow, you know, to your nose every chance they get. It's, it's I just I just do not understand the American point of view on, on this at all. I'm glad you uh you went where you were going because this is the the weird part of the NBA season where we have like a month before actual games start and we're all just kind of like looking for collective affirmation. <laughs> and uh I think Luke is going to be incredible. But you obviously haven't seen him play a game yet against uh, the guys over here. And I'm like, okay, please say he's going to be fantastic. Please say he's going to be fantastic. <laughs> please agree with us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Please be ex- as excited as us. So I guess, yeah, I dive a little bit more deeper on, I guess, your exposure to Luka and your expectations for him, I guess, uh, the rookie season. So the Mavs fan can uh, can go crazy one last time. Look, it's all. It, I have no no personal contact with him. I haven't seen him play in person but just based on what he's accomplished and what he had to overcome to accomplish it, it's unbelievable. And the, the big mistake that's always made, and it's especially true in football and in basketball, is people look at all these measurables coming into the draft. Marquise Chris was an incredible athlete coming in the draft a few years ago, and the Phoenix Suns have dumped him. And there are all sorts of NFL quarterbacks who've come in the NFL draft who had the best arm strength and they were tall and they look, they look like the part and they couldn't play. And the two best quarterbacks in my lifetime have been Tom Brady with sixth round and Joe Montana, I think in the third round. And, uh, you know, Brady's got a decent arm. Joe Montana had a weak arm. This kind of stuff. Larry Bird was not the best leaper in the NBA. Um, Magic Johnson was not, Michael Jordan as an athlete. My, Larry, Magic Johnson was not a leaper. He was not an explosive player. It, this stuff doesn't. It only matters so much. It, they they talk so much about hardware in the NBA, and it's really all about the software. And he's got the software. 
And then he's got the physical size and he's got enough athleticism and he's got the the skills as a shooter to pull it all off. But what he really has proved is that he knows how to win and that he knows how to uh, lead. And again, you just cannot say it enough. The guy was the best player in Europe playing against guys a dozen years older than him, guys who who were not impressed with his reputation at all. And he had to earn their leadership. I just cannot believe the Phoenix Suns didn't draft him. <laughs> we're happy he what didn't, he though. Would, but what he would have done for them, providing them the leadership that they don't have, and I don't see them getting it from any other source. I don't know. I, I just think it's... Um, I, I don't I don't see comparisons with Dirk because uh, because Luca has Luca's proved a lot more coming over uh, than than Dirk was able to uh, and they play a different style of game but I do see the mentality from afar and I do see the the resiliency and I see the the potential and I I just think he's going to be absolutely terrific. And he's not going to care how many points he scores. And that's just the greatest thing you can say about an NBA star, that he doesn't care about that. It's not about the hardware. It's all about the software. You mind if I steal that? Oh, please. Yeah, all I've right. been saying that for years, and you're the first <laughs> one ever actually ever, ever liked it. Hey, it's a great line. <laughs> that's awesome. Ian, I cannot thank you enough for your time. We really enjoyed the conversation, man. Uh, thanks. Hey, can we, can we, do you have one more minute? Absolutely. I, I just, I'd like to just dwell on how Dirk celebrated his championship. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Please please take us into that moment. It's it's our fault for even not even asking that. No, 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 no. But I had, uh, you know, when you're writing a book like this, it goes through a lot of editors at the publisher at uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt up here in Boston. Mm-hmm. And one of the editors was, uh, there were several editors who went through it. One of them was a woman who really didn't care much about sports and she wrote to me afterwards. She said, you know, I don't know anything about Dirk Nowitzki or the NBA or anything, but my eyes were welling up reading about him after he won the championship. And I just keep hearing this over and over that this is, this is the scene that cements people's affection and admiration and respect for Dirk, that when, when they know they're going to win in the final seconds of game six in Miami and he disappears off the court, and he runs into the hallway leading away from the court. It's the court where he's supposed to be standing on a stage with his teammates to accept the trophy and the MVP award that he's surely going to win. And he disappears. So Tim Frank, the head PR guy for the NBA, chases him down the hallway. Can't find him. Looks in the locker room. He isn't there. Uh, Tim goes into the shower area, the visitor's locker room in Miami, and there's Dirk. He's lying in a corner of the of the visitor's locker room in the shower, lying on this decrepit old bench, and he's got a towel over his face, and he's just sobbing. And you would think the guy would be, you know, the, the typical American thing after, after winning a championship, everybody does the same thing, right? Everybody does it. They all jump up and down, and it's like they're trying to be somebody, they're trying to do what everybody else has always done, but that's not Dirk. Dirk Dirk runs away from all that, and he's just overwhelmed by what has just happened, what he's been able to achieve. And Tim is telling him, look, we need you out there to accept the trophy. And Dirk is saying, I need 30 minutes 
Three <laughs> he's minutes. Got maybe three, he's got maybe three minutes, you know. And then Scott Tomlin from the Mavericks, the PR guy, one of the PR people with, with Sarah Melton uh, at the Mavericks. He comes in, and uh, he's one of Dirk's best friends. And he's he's being all sympathetic with Dirk, and Dirk's just not budging. He just can't do it. I mean, his chest is heaving, and he's just crying. And Scott finally gets firm with his friend and says, look, if you don't come out there with your teammates, you are going to regret it for the rest of your life. And Dirk listened to that, and he stood up, and he went out and celebrated. But it just always strikes me every every time every time this comes up, this idea that that you know the season began with that decision show that LeBron did. He went on TV, created a reality TV show for himself, and he went on TV and said, "I'm taking my talents to South Beach." This was a guy that when he was in trouble, when his career was in trouble, when he was thought of as a choker and he hadn't won a championship, he ran to the cameras. He wanted the attention. He wanted – he thought that was going to be his – that was how he was going to get salvation. That was going to rescue him is going in front of the cameras. You know, and then the next day he goes to Miami and makes promises he can't keep. They're going to win seven championships. It's going to be easy, all that kind of stuff. So that's what he does. It's it's like a commercial response for him. He's gonna he's gonna sell himself commercially, and that's gonna save him. And when Dirk wins, it's the exact opposite. I mean, everybody wants Dirk out on that stage so they can cheer for him and celebrate with him. And he, it's a very personal moment for him. He's he's just overwhelmed by this guy that he's become. I mean, just imagine all the the, the scenes playing through in his head of all the hard losses or maybe when he was a kid and he's scared of coming over. Am I really that good? And now all of a sudden he is, he's the best player in the world right now and he's done it. And he, he just, it was a private moment. And that, that to me, the book's called the soul of basketball. And that scene is the epitome of a guy realizing the soul of basketball of fulfilling it, of connecting with it. You know, the, the, the two fingers touching uh, in the Sistine Chapel, all that kind of stuff. That's what, that's, that's, he, he realized this and he never thought he would. And it's just an amazing, great thing that, that happened. It's a moment I will never, ever forget. And I remember watching it uh, alone at my house because I didn't want to be around anybody else. <laughs> and I remember the game ends and every single Mavericks fan has the same question of where's Dirk and the confusion that sets in. And then just this wash of understanding of realizing he went back to the locker room because he just, he couldn't take it. (laughs) It was too much. It was too much for him emotionally at that moment that all of it was happening happening right now in front of him because it meant that much to him. And uh, I'm sure a lot of Mavericks fans got, uh, Got tingles listening to you retell that story. And, uh, yeah, that's just awesome, man. He's just one of the most consistent guys that has ever played uh, at such a high level. You know, I mean, even at the moment of his uh, of his triumph, the one that really maybe surpassed his dreams, he's still the same guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's not trying to be something he isn't. He's always just being who he is, it's, it's, you know, most players you forget about and they come and go, but he will be remembered. Uh, everybody, everybody who cared about him when he played 
will continue to care about him 10, 20 years later. It's, he's, his impact will, will be lasting. And we have been, and I, I say this all the time, just as Mavs fans, as observers, people that have been lucky enough to watch him for 21 years, we're just that. We're lucky. We are people my age. I'm I'm 27 years old. I do not know what the NBA is like without Dirk. I have no memory of basketball before Dirk. I have never had a favorite player who isn't Dirk, except for Michael Finley when I was like four years old. You know, he has just been all that we know in Dallas for so long, and we are so 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 lucky to have gotten to see his career. Obviously, to see him win the championship, but just to experience what it's like to to root for and and look up to. A, a player and a person who is so just humble, selfless, but also sets the example of what it is like to kind of forge your own destiny and carve your own path. And, and all of these really, these grandiose ideas that you call the American dream in your book and that, that you, that you say that Dirk achieved, I mean, all of these things, he did it. And, and for us to get to have watched it and, and experienced it right along with him has just been one of the most rewarding things ever. Uh, to have that relationship with somebody that you don't know. Absolutely. To feel, to feel like you know him and to feel like you're proud of him. You're proud of the association, the way he identifies your city to the rest of the country, to the rest of the world, really, because that that's his audience. Uh, you know, and that he drew so much strength from the city of Dallas. I mean, it's really true. It's not, it's not a fake thing. He, he he came to Dallas not knowing who he was, who he could be, and he fulfilled himself in Dallas. And it was with the help of the city of Dallas and all the people in Dallas. And it's such a rare relationship in this mercenary commercial age that he transcends all the money and all the TV ratings and all the commercials and everything else. This relationship between Dirk and the fans in Dallas it's a real thing, and it's the same kind of relationship that LeBron wanted when he went back to Cleveland, that he'd burned. He burned his bridge, and he tried to build a bridge so he could go back home again. Uh, but Dirk, Dirk's always had it and always will. There's never going to be another one like him. And if uh, you, the listener, want to relive some of those moments and uh, experience a fantastic book, go out there uh on amazon barnes and nobles google books ibooks anywhere you would find a book uh the soul of basketball the epic showdown between lebron kobe dirk or doc and dirk that saved the nba by ian thompson ian thompson thank you so much for your time man uh thank you it's been a real pleasure thank you really enjoyed it all right thanks man